Good morning, everyone. Uh, we've had a little bit of technical issues, but we're ready to go. Uh, welcome to Providence Southern Oregon Grand Rounds for March 2022 and happy St. Patrick's Day. Today, we're fortunate to have Dr. Marion Hodges from Providence Senior Health presenting on dementia and primary care. Dr. Hodges is a geriatric medicine specialist. She graduated from Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and completed a residency at OHSU. Um, she did fellowships at University of Washington and the VA in Portland. Welcome, Dr. Hodges. Thank you, Eric, and, and good morning, everybody. So my career passion has been dementia and how to manage it better and how to help other providers with their approach. And today I really want to turn your head around, around your role in dementia as a primary care provider. So that's an ambitious goal for today's talk, but I've worked to break down this approach for you into six tips. So let me just start with saying dementia is the messiest disease in primary care. It's everywhere, whether or not we recognize it. It affects the management of every condition, acute or chronic, in the patients who have it. It's the most common terminal condition without a major effective treatment that either reverses symptoms or slows the progression of the disease. And it's the most expensive when you think that it's the most common trigger for someone to move into long-term care or to hire private pay caregivers. And for us as PCPs, I don't think there's another disease that makes us feel more hopeless or helpless. And so my first tip for you all is that you as the PCP are the most important person in healthcare for your patients with dementia. You probably don't see yourself that way, but you are. It's not the neurologist, it's not the geropsychiatrist, it's not the social worker. And why is it you? Well, because families expect you to be. You're the doctor or you're the provider and they're counting on you to help them. And we have a lot of adults caregiving for dementia in Oregon. And my hope is that if you incorporate my tips today, you're gonna to be better equipped to help these patients and caregivers. And so let me tell you about a recent patient I saw. Uh, Mrs. JT is a 75 year old woman who has progressive difficulty tracking her appointments and now she's getting lost driving to familiar places. Her husband scheduled her to come see me to evaluate her cognition. And in my history, she couldn't answer many of my questions. She frequent, frequently turned to her husband for help. Her past medical history was pretty unremarkable, pretty common for my patients, hypertension, osteoarthritis of her knees. Her slums on my exam was a 10 out of 30, which is, is a pretty low score, pretty advanced. Uh, and her gait was the only thing that was abnormal on her exam. She was pretty wobbly from her arthritis. The 88, which I'm going to tell you more about later, but that was a questionnaire for the husband to fill out, was as positive as it gets for him noticing changes in her. I did laboratory work, which was unremarkable, and I got an MRI of her brain, which showed both mini strokes and some hippocampal atrophy, which we commonly see in Alzheimer's. And so I was expecting them to come back so I could tell them the results of the MRI and her lab work, but they um, didn't schedule the appointment initially. In fact, we had to reach out several times until finally, about two months later, they came back. And at that office visit, I delivered the diagnosis. 
of mixed dementia, which is a combination of both the mini strokes and her Alzheimer's disease. And they were both very appropriately tearful. But the husband said to me, we didn't want to come today as we feared hearing what you just said. But we needed to know. And now we're going to work together on this and, and we're going to make a plan because we need one. And the, and the wife, Mrs. JT, nodded right along with him. She agreed to stop driving. In fact, she just recently had. And I learned later that he retired from his law practice, which he was still doing the following month. So in interviews that we've done with families uh, several years ago, we learned that they have three key needs from us. They need a name for the changes in their parent or spouse that they are seeing. They know this is not the person they knew. And when we say things like, oh, they're just getting older or, oh, there's nothing we can do, then we as the PCP are no longer trusted or helpful in their eyes. In fact, we've rejected the validity of the changes that they are seeing and that they're trying to tell us about. They need us to help diagnose this disease, if it is there, to give it a name so that, that they can plan and figure out what to do for the future. But the frank reality, and you all know this, is the person with dementia is usually not the person who's suffering the most. Now, there's definite suffering in many of our patients, especially early in the disease or later, but not in everybody. In fact, as you know, many patients with dementia are oblivious to their deficits. Many don't have frightening hallucinations or severe agitation, but almost every patient with dementia has a family member or friend who is suffering, seeing them diminished, seeing them more impaired. And that grieving, that, that toll of caregiving in the family member means that you in primary care, you have two kinds of patients in your practice you need to be thinking about related to dementia. Yes, you have your patients who are diagnosed, but you also have these family caregivers, the spouses, the daughters or sons, or even the grandchildren who are doing primary caregiving roles. And we know that being a caregiver for someone with dementia, that in itself is a health event. We know these caregivers are more likely to be depressed, anxious, they're at greater risk for vascular disease, cancer, serious infections, and we know that the caregiver can die first before the patient. They often neglect their own health symptoms uh, and, and their health, care maintenance, all those things because they're too busy caregiving. So I ask you to think about this other group too, because I bet you have a lot of caregivers in your practice who need you to help them care for themselves. And you may not even know that they're a caregiver. Now, seniors are gonna explode in numbers in Oregon over the next 35 years, especially the over 85 age group, which is that bar to the far right on this graph, 234% increase by 2050. And in Southern Oregon, you guys are at the top of our different Providence regions for growth in seniors over 65. If you look at that orange bar on the bottom, that's the percentage of adults over 18 
who are 65 and above. And Southern Oregon is expected to have a 34% increase greater than all the other regions in the next five years, which means because dementia is a disease of aging, you're gonna have more persons with dementia and likely more family caregivers in your practice. So the second tip is, well, most of your patients with dementia are probably not even diagnosed yet. And so for you, that means the families haven't heard the news. The diagnosis is not on the problem list. I'm asking you to help them get the diagnosis, to think of that as your primary job as a PCP. So let's take a pause a little bit and talk about a few terms. Now, there are some changes with the brain with normal aging, but with normal aging, your function should be preserved. You should be able to live your life independently and safely. Take your medicines as instructed. You might need to write some post-it notes, but you'll take them as, as written on the instructions. You'll be able to manage your own checkbook. Those things ought to be able to be preserved. Yes, we do have word finding and retrieval difficulties, and they happen even before 65. You forget proper names. You have trouble remembering the name of a movie. But, but that's not interfering with your daily function. And usually with normal aging, the patient is way more concerned about their memory than the family. And when we do cognitive tests, they perform normally. And what dementia is, and, and most of you know this, is that you have significant cognitive decline from your usual function in yes, usually more than one domain, which means memory, language, calculations, executive function, but the deficits interfere with your ability to live your life independently and safely. That's the major thing, is the functional change and that it's not from something else. Now, you've probably heard about mild cognitive impairment and you're gonna hear a lot more about it. Uh, the Alzheimer's Association just released a monograph this week about mild cognitive impairment and how we should be paying more attention to it. I'm only gonna say a couple of things about it. Basically, it's a change in cognition, usually only in one area and usually memory, but it can be language or something else, but your function is not impaired. You can still manage your medicines, conduct your daily life, drive and not get lost. There's no change with your function. That's the big difference. The reason we're concerned about it is that mild cognitive impairment does make you at greater risk for developing particularly Alzheimer's later. And so we're worried about people with MCI. Not everybody develops dementia, but, but you definitely are at greater risk. And so the excitement for many people in the research community is they're looking at mild cognitive impairment. How can we intervene here so somebody doesn't progress? And I think you're going to hear a lot more about that in the future. But let's focus more on dementia today. Dementia is a syndrome and, and it's cognitive changes coupled with neuropsychiatric and behavioral symptoms with concurrent loss of function. So that's a lot of change, right? You know the cognitive symptoms that we can see. The neuropsych symptoms include uh, hallucinations, delusions, but often we see the, the more psychiatric part in dementia, the depression, the anxiety, the, the apathy. The behaviors uh, can be both uh, innocuous, such as repeating questions over and over, or more violent, such as hitting 
yelling, spitting. And 97% of people with dementia have behaviors, so we expect them. This is not an exception. There are lots of etiologies for dementia, and they're all irreversible. The most common being Alzheimer's uh, in, in the United States, but all of these on, these on this slide, I'm sure you've heard about or familiar with in your practice. What I don't think we talk about enough is that mixed dementia is very common. If we were to take a, an autopsy and of every patient we have with dementia and actually look at their brain up close, we usually see more than one pathology simultaneously. Usually we see, like we saw in my sample patient today, Mrs. JT, both mini strokes and evidence of plaques and tangles or Alzheimer's and Lewy body disease. So the mixed dementia is way more common than the pure disease. We just can't see it always. So dementia, as we know, is super common. This data from the 2021 Alzheimer's Association Facts and Figures says that we now have 6.2 million persons in America with dementia. The majority of them, 75%, are over the age of 75. But I like to take that graph and, and translate it into a different way, which I have on the right side of this slide. We in geriatrics tend to, to look at the people over 65 who are our patients in what we call tertiles or three age groups because they're not all the same. And in the age of 65 to 74, it's about one in 20 who will have Alzheimer's, 5%. 75 to 84, one in six, and then over 85, one in three. And I mentioned that 234% explosion in, in Oregon over the next uh, 25, 30 years in the over 85 age group, we're gonna have a lot more people with dementia. So let's talk about Oregon and our patients. And in 2020, the senior health team, uh, we had you know, more time sitting at home uh, with the pandemic. And so our analysts in our department were able to plunge into Epic and look at data within PMG for how we're doing in diagnosing dementia. And we compared the number of ICD-10 codes that are dementia codes in all seniors in PMG Oregon with the numbers that we would expect given that data I just gave you from the Alzheimer's Association. How many um, people over 65 should we be seeing and how many people actually have the diagnosis? And what we learned is that about 50% uh, of people probably don't have the diagnosis that have it. And to be honest, we're like every other symptom system in the country. Uh, under diagnosis is, is rampant. The other thing we looked at though, uh, is we looked at annual wellness visits. And in the annual wellness visit, you all know there's a cognitive screen, the mini-cog. And we saw that for everybody with an abnormal mini-cog, only about 50% of them had a follow-up slums or MOCA or some other cognitive evaluation. We're gonna come back to that, but that was absolutely startling to us. I mean, I, I can't imagine 50% of abnormal mammograms not having a follow-up screening tests beg that we, we look at them more closely later on if they're positive. And so one, one response that we had to this data was that we decided, you know, 
there's there are reasons for this. There are reasons for the underdiagnosis and, and the lack of follow-up. And so we interviewed five primary care providers in PMG who have a lot of older adults in their practice, but very low dementia prevalence rates. And these interviews were very uh, honest and candid, and we were just trying to learn. And what we found were five themes. The, the provider said that they felt pretty confident in diagnosing dementia. And so there was a disconnect for them between their confidence and the fact that they didn't have many patients diagnosed on their problem lists. They did say, and this is absolutely true, that boy, there are a lot of, of quality measures that they're being graded on, and those take priority. I mean, they, they are translated into bonuses. Um, they're important, of course, hemoglobin A1Cs, they're important. And so dementia wasn't as big as a priority as some other conditions that are chronic. But certainly they emphasize lack of time and lack of comfort talking with patients about the diagnosis, talking about the challenging behaviors, talking about the medications, lots of trouble just feeling comfortable doing that. And they also didn't really think about how they might utilize uh, their team members, the pharmacist, the care manager, uh, the behaviorists, more to support them in this care. Well, in addition to the barriers that the PCPs shared with us, and they're real barriers, real barriers, there are other barriers that the literature presents that, that I wanted to mention today. The system barriers include, and this is definitely true for Providence, that PCPs do not have enough specialists to turn to, to help them with the management and the diagnosis of these patients. Neurologists, geriatricians, geropsych, they're not enough. But there are also patient barriers for us diagnosing this disease. Patients often assume that the changes that they are having are normal with aging, or they're pretty fearful of the changes they're having and they don't wanna bring them up because they might be too afraid of what will happen next or what you might tell them they have. And they also assume that if it's really important and the changes are there and they're meaningful, that you're gonna bring it up. But there's another really big barrier to our being able to diagnose, and that's that early, episode, early Alzheimer's is episodic. And we're not taught that in medical training. We're not taught that a person one day in early Alzheimer's will have trouble figuring out their checkbook, will repeat questions over and over, and the next day they're totally normal, just functioning on all cylinders. And so the families, they're, they're confused. They're like, well, dad was not right yesterday, but today he looks great, so there must not be a problem. And so families will hesitate bringing anything forward, also because they may not want to know that something is wrong. And then when we see the patient in the office, they often kind of pull themselves up, their adrenaline is flowing, and they're able to give us very plausible histories, and we won't see anything. So why do we want to diagnose? We've talked about why the family wants it, but let's talk about why the patient wants it. Yes, it's going to help them be able to prepare for the future better their wills, financial plans. Uh, the earlier they know, 
their brain is working the best right now, better than it will work later, and so they can do these things. And they can also think about their bucket list. What do I want to get done now because I'm at my best that I don't want to postpone and not be able to do? And, and maybe I should think about moving now and not later. And we know that trying to move somebody with advanced dementia later can be very challenging. So knowing earlier on is often a very helpful thing. But most of all, for us as providers, it really makes their medical care better. It means that we look at their medicine list and we take away the anticholinergics that are interfering with their brain function, especially Benadryl. Um, and perhaps some, some uh, opioids or other medicines that reduce the acetylcholine in their brain, which is already low with Alzheimer's. It means that we'll look for other reversible causes of cognitive loss that perhaps we haven't paid attention to. Uh, substance abuse, alcohol, benzodiazepines. And yes, it's really gonna influence, and this is a major point on this slide, the medical decision-making for all other clinical interventions if we know that this person has dementia. It will affect uh, our thoughts about starting new medicines, thinking about procedures. And for the patient, advanced care planning takes on a whole new meaning. They're now able to look at their life going forward and think about it in this context, as hard as that might be, but that really is helpful. And then if they are interested in helping research and helping others, they can participate in a research trial and they could not do that if they did not have the diagnosis. And patients tell us they want to know. You know, we've done multiple studies over the years. There was even a, a newer one than I reference on this slide. And the percentages are from 75 to 90% of patients want to know if they have a diagnosis of dementia. They want us to tell them. This study from several years ago in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society was really interesting. It looked at about 450 patients who did not have the diagnosis on their chart, but probably have dementia, and compared them to 580 patients who have the diagnosis of dementia and have it on their chart. And what they found was that for those who did not have the diagnosis on their chart, but likely had it, they were twice as likely to be driving, three times more likely to be managing their money, which means they're more likely to be victims of financial scammers coming to their door or on the phone. They're four times more likely to be managing their own medicines, which usually means they're not taking their medicines as prescribed. And so they have uncontrolled hypertension, uncontrolled diabetes, uncontrolled symptoms of heart failure and coming into the hospital more often. And they're more likely to come to doctor's visits on their own, which means that uh, we give them instructions and, and those instructions may go nowhere because there's no one else there to remind them later on. And so we make the diagnosis through screening or through suspicion. And you want to diagnose more patients who have it in your practice and who do not have it on the problem list. And so this is a good place to start. And so who should you suspect? Well, we've already talked about the family who reaches out to you. And I'll just say that, that my little tip here is that if families reach out to me, I ask them to either send me a MyChart message or mail me a letter detailing their concerns because they often can't say them in front of the patient. 
We also know that patients who fail to make appointments or come on the wrong days, the wrong times, that's a red flag. And if somebody has new delirium during a hospitalization, that's a reason to think that perhaps they have an abnormal brain that we haven't recognized because delirium is much more likely to happen in someone with dementia. And so that should get our attention. And in the exam room, you might see some other changes in your patients, and you might see them change as you get to know the patient over time, that the patient will start telling you, well, I'm really worried about their memory, and they may be the worried well, but we also know there's a fraction of patients who actually recognize the changes that are happening in them, so we need to pay attention to that. Or they used to be really good historians, and now they give you very little detail or monosyllabic answers. You know, everything is fine. That's a red flag. Or they, in one office visit, will repeat the same story more than once. You know, we might find that kind of curious, but that's a red flag. And finally, if you have a person over 80 who's never had an anxiety disorder and develops anxiety new, then that's a red flag because anxiety is often a prodromal symptom to somebody developing Alzheimer's. So during the Obama administration, uh, CMS developed the annual wellness visit, uh, which we're all familiar with. And so we began screening routinely for cognition. And yet, as good as the MINICOG is, and it's 99% sensitive, 93% specific, it's a test that only takes a few minutes, there are some challenges uh, in the annual wellness visit, and some of the challenges are that our medical assistants do not necessarily have all the uh, training that they need to make sure that they grade this correctly or even conduct it correctly. But the other challenge is we were not prepared with workflows for what to do if there's an abnormal screen, like what happens next. We had nothing in EPIC to prompt us. I'm going to talk more about this later. But that's that's a challenge. Well, I'm not going to spend a lot of time today on how to make the diagnosis, and I think a lot of you are familiar with these components and perhaps you're you're doing this at least intermittently, but I do want to bring up a few pointers. I've spent already a good deal of time in this talk trying to emphasize why making the diagnosis is important for the for the family and for the patient. And yet, even when we suspect it, even when we have an abnormal mini-cog, I think a lot of us pause in going the next step. And we pause in part because we do believe that, wow, I don't have a really great medicine to give these people. I can't really reverse any of their symptoms. We feel nihilistic about this disease. And so I want you to get over that there's nothing you can do because there's a lot you can do. And so the role of PCP in dementia, uh, as I've put it together for you, is, is this. That first of all, we need to make sure they get the diagnosis and it goes on the problem list. We can really help with counseling. Education is huge. Discussing what to expect, but definitely describing the positive actions that the patient can take to help maximize their brain function, because they want to know what they can do, as opposed to there's nothing you can do. For us to support the family, uh, to be really conscious of the medication list and think about deprescribing and certainly pause before we add new medicines. 
but definitely to manage chronic disease and to adjust our goals for treatment now that dementia is a diagnosis. To see these patients more regularly and to encourage the family to be present and to use our team to help us. This is not a disease that we should be managing alone. You know, geriatrics is, is a team sport and we need to use our team. And so when I say counseling, what they can do for themselves, I, I pretty much have made the slide into part of my and uh, after visit summary that I tell them these things that they can do, which are pretty basic and they're mostly lifestyle, but regular activity, both physical and, and mental brain stimulation is good for somebody with dementia. Um, eating healthy, particularly a Mediterranean diet, um, and making sure you get adequate sleep and, and minimize the alcohol. But this slide is, this is a real money slide for this talk. I, I want you to really think about how dementia should affect every healthcare decision you're making with these patients. And I'm not saying this lightly. It really should influence, well, do they still need to go to those specialists, cardiology and pulmonary and endocrine? Because each of those trips out of the house or out of assisted living is way more burdensome than I think you may realize. But there's a lot of things that you can probably do that will help them not have to have that extra energy, brain energy spent, because that's tiring for them. To think about each procedure, uh, colonoscopy, mammogram, lab draw, is it gonna really benefit them or is it not really gonna help them in the big picture? Or is it really burdensome? You know, I remember I sent a, early in my practice, I sent an older woman with dementia to a mammogram and it was absolutely a terrifying experience for her. She did not realize why this machine was squeezing her body and her family really chewed me out afterwards. Why did you do that to mom? I didn't think about it. And then to anticipate post-op management. Can the patient even comply with the aftercare, the recovery period, the, the instructions that the eye doctor may have? Uh, retinal tears require 48 hours or some number of days where the patient lies on their stomach with their eyes on a pillow. Can the patient lie down for more than five minutes without standing up because they can't remember? We have to think about this. So my fourth tip is that the diagnosis is not made by an abnormal slums number alone. And I, I really regret that the slums is printed this way with the scoring tab at the bottom that says, you know, if you're one to 20 with a high school education, then it's dementia, because I've already told you that's not true. This is just part of the um, diagnosis is having cognitive changes. We have to show abnormal function as well, which is not part of the slums. And so the data for diagnosis, well, uh, the crux is usually in the history that we're hearing about the changes in function or the new neuropsych symptoms or behaviors. We expect the physical to be normal and the labs to be normal in almost all of these patients with dementia because most of them have Alzheimer's and they will have a normal exam and labs. The slums can be supportive of the diagnosis, but it can even be normal in high IQ patients who we think about as not being normal because their function is no longer normal. 
And so how do we get at the function? Well, I use the 88 scale, which I'll show you on the next slide, uh, but that's definitely a big part of the picture. And, and neuroimaging can sometimes help. So what is the 88? Well, it's a screen that the family fills out. It has eight questions. Uh, and the family is asked to indicate, has there been a change in the last several years in any of these eight? And so it's yes, a change or no. And so I think you can read some of these, but, but problems with judgment, less interest in hobbies, repeats the same thing over and over, trouble using a tool such as a remote or a phone, etc. And if they score two or more of these as a yes, then that's a positive test. Now, the dilemma is that this is not on Epic. It should be. We're working on that in senior health. You can Google it. And what I've done is I've printed them. I have the families fill it out in the room. And then I usually uh, take a picture of it into, um, you know, our, our Epic uh, on my phone. And then I, and I load it into the chart. But you can also just take a really good history of function. Are they still able to manage their checkbook uh, normally? Can they take their medicines normally? Can they um, go from one place to another in their car safely? I mean, you can just take a good history too. And we are working on a smart phrase to help with uh, the functional history, which we'll share later with you all. Not today, but soon. So if you're not sure of the diagnosis, you think you might have a patient with dementia, but you're you're worried that you might be wrong or you're not confident in delivering that diagnosis, well then get help. I mean, you don't have to do it, but just make sure that the patient gets the diagnosis if it's there. And so there are other people who can help you. Occupational therapy is way underused and the Allen cognitive level should be specifically requested. They don't do it automatically, but that's a fantastic cognitive assessment, which is an important data point, if positive, for um, a conclusion that the person likely has dementia. Neurology can help. Geriatrics, we, we have our uh, Southern or South Region PMG Geriatric Mini Fellowship grads who I'm hoping in the future will be able to do more consults. And I'm gonna be hiring a new geriatrician up here uh, in the Portland area who might be able to do some virtual consults to Medford in the future, but they're not a big source now to help you. Jerry Psych, I don't know if you realize that since the pandemic, the Jerry Psychiatrists at Providence, Milwaukee are doing all their appointments virtually. And I checked with them this week and they said they absolutely can consult on Medford patients from Portland. And I put the EPIC referral uh, number here on the, on the slide, but they can definitely help diagnose. And then there's some team members who might be able to help you with slums testing if you if you just can't do that with your time. But once the diagnosis is made, put it on the problem list. Uh, memory loss or cognitive changes, it's not good enough if somebody has dementia. And the diagnosis should be high on the problem list. The emergency room doctor needs to see it if the patient has dementia. The hospitalist needs to know about it before they're doing their admission or while they're doing their admission and not later. It's an HCC code and that helps our remuneration, but it also connotes the complexity of trying to manage this patient. We should, we should have the diagnosis on the chart. It will affect everybody who looks at that patient. So my fifth tip 
which may be a surprise to, to many of you, is you can start preventing dementia now in your middle-aged patients. This uh, article in The Lancet a few years ago just hasn't gotten enough attention, I think because we've all been in our bubbles with the pandemic, but they did an amazing review of all of the literature looking at how, what factors, uh, if we mitigate them, may reduce someone's likelihood of developing dementia. And if you look at the blue circle in the middle, because this kind of backwards S is, a, is somebody's lifespan, but that middle uh, circle refers to midlife. And what we've learned is that if we focus on hearing loss and address it when someone is middle-aged and get them hearing aids if, if they're eligible, that can reduce their likelihood of getting dementia, may mitigate risk by um, 8%. If they're wearing their seatbelt, and prevent traumatic brain injury, if they control their hypertension, reduce um, their alcohol if they drink too much, if they have focus on their weight, all those things in middle life can reduce their chance of getting both Alzheimer's as well as vascular dementia. They both have risks related to this. And you might say, wow, so maybe when I'm counseling somebody around their blood pressure and why they should take their medicines, I shouldn't just focus on reducing stroke and heart disease, but this could reduce your likelihood of getting dementia. And people might hear you differently. So I think it's important to recognize these factors. So in the last little bit of time I have, I wanna talk about some supports from our team which is not really a tip, <laughs> but it's an additional bonus, um, now and forthcoming to help you with the care of these patients. I think many of you know about the book that I co-wrote with Ann Hill uh, called Help Is Here When Someone You Love Has Dementia. We wrote this because we both recognized that families didn't have a guidebook to help them really know what to expect along the journey. And, and families um, have told us this has been very helpful. I'm very grateful that we were able to write this with the support of the foundation. All monies from sales goes to the foundation, and you can also find it on Amazon. But if you want to do some bulk ordering, you can go to the Providence website or email Itzel, uh, whose email is on the bottom of the slide. Family members have told us that what they really need, in addition to help us here, help us here is great, but it's not enough. They need a navigator. They need somebody really beyond what the primary care office can do to help them. And so last September, we launched in uh, the Portland service area, our version of a care ecosystem, an evidence-based model that was developed by UCSF and the University of Nebraska which is care navigators who are a point of contact on the phone. So they're doing remote care around medication concerns, safety questions, behavior questions, really trying to guide the family about the journey. And our care navigators are supported by a clinical team because they do have lots of questions they don't know the answers to. Uh, care navigators are usually not healthcare professionals, but their expertise is in interpersonal relationships and communication. And so we launched our own uh, care ecosystem last fall with two navigators. And my hope is that uh, we're now with 50 families in the Portland area, but that we're able to extend to the South region in the future. That's the goal. And we can do that because it's a telephone service.
Another way that we want to help all of you in the future is through this work that Mary Beth Kiebrick and my uh, team, the senior health team, is working on, which is a workflow, a standardized workflow for PMG if there's an abnormal mini-cog. And we're now testing this with some providers in Portland to work out the kinks, but we need this workflow so those screens don't fall through the cracks. What we've also done, and I'm very proud of, and I think you've heard a little bit about it, is we've developed a geriatric mini fellowship. Uh, this is for PMG providers. We've now had three cohorts of about seven fellows each year, all primary care providers in practice who spend four weeks with uh, me and my team. Uh, each week is focused on one of the four M's of age-friendly care. And I've listed our five graduates from SOSA. And the age-friendly uh, framework, the four M's are listed on this slide, but as you can see, one of them is mentation. And so we spend a whole week pretty much diving way deeper into dementia and uh, delirium, but mostly dementia, to be honest, because this is a complicated disease. And so we, we talk about how to communicate with patients and families and how to think about behaviors and manage them and, and more depth than I was able to give you today. And we've studied our fellows. We've, we've done qualitative interviews um, after the fellowship and, and beyond, but we've also followed their care on EPIC. And the fellows tell us uh, I'm no longer scared to talk about dementia, not like I was before, but they're also recognizing the disease more frequently. They're doing more cognitive screens and follow-up to abnormal mini-cogs, and they're diagnosing dementia now at the rate of what the Alzheimer's Association uh, would predict for the age groups in their practice. But the fellows have also uh, told us, and this was a surprise, we didn't expect this from the fellowship, that those four weeks really connected them back to the heart of medicine. Uh, their burnout for many was reduced. And, and I think that's in part because we are not trained adequately in family medicine, internal medicine, to really be able to manage our complicated older adult patients. And the fellowship helps give them that confidence. And with that confidence, uh, they feel less frightened and more sure of how they can help their older adult patients and they enjoy them more. And so that's been a great gift. And I think on this slide, this is from our first cohort, you can recognize Dr. Subetcha Shaw, a third from the left, and Dr. Lori Dekevich in the middle, um, who've just gone on to do wonderful work uh, with seniors since they graduated. Very proud of them. So uh, in summary, I, um, I've wanted today to help you think about dementia differently and to think about uh, how you as the PCP are way more important uh, for your patients with dementia and their families and you probably have, have realized or even wanted to realize. And they need you uh, on their team that many of your patients are not uh, diagnosed, or maybe you know that they have the diagnosis. It's, it's listed as memory changes on their problem list, um, but it needs to be officially diagnosed by you or with help from someone else. 
And there are lots of abnormal minicogs that haven't had follow up and, and we need to be paying more attention to those. And we're going to help you with that from senior health. But definitely you all can do something for the persons with dementia in your practice. It doesn't have to be a medication. Making the diagnosis is huge for the patient and family because they can move on with their life with that knowledge and that's incredibly important. It will mean that you'll avoid medicines that they don't need and that you'll be planning all care in the future with that in mind. And the diagnosis is just not made, as I said, by what the slum says on the bottom, but also is their function abnormal? I wanted you really to think about function today. You can start preventing dementia in all your adult patients. If we think about some of those risks that I list on that slide and how those two, if managed earlier on, may prevent Alzheimer's and vascular dementia later. And that we have some tools now for you. Uh, we have uh, help is here. We have the mini fellowship, but we're also working on other supports for you with the care ecosystem, with the abnormal mini cognitive workflow for the future. And so um, I'm really, really encouraging all of you to lean into this disease. I think we, we want to run away from it. Uh, it's not something that any of us really, it's, it's just a scary disease. I mean, that's just what it is. And yet our patients and families um, are out there struggling and we can help them. And, uh, and I want to let you know that you can do it. So I'm going to stop there and I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you, Dr. Thank you, Dr. Hodges. Hodges. Um, a very inspiring uh, talk uh, and as a graduate of the mini fellowship, I can say it's it's one of the best things that I've done in my career. Um, really enjoyed it and we have plenty of patients over 65 down here and if any of you have any interest at all, I'd encourage you to um, think about it or uh, ask any of the other people who've gone through it questions. I'd encourage you to do it. Um, now we have some questions here. Uh, the first one, in your patient example, you thought dementia was extremely likely but had them schedule follow-up in order to give them the diagnosis. So there's two questions here. How do you signal to you and others in the team that you have the diagnosis of dementia but patient not informed yet and with patient and family being able to see I think that's probably on the chart I have found that I can't put it on the problem list until they schedule follow-up mm -hmm. right yeah good question so um I do like um, and that's a great question. I do like to divide the evaluation into two visits and and I and you're right to call it out. Um, I usually know the diagnosis by the end of the first visit for many patients, particularly if their slums is 10 out of 30 and the history is very consistent with the disease and the 88, uh, which the family member filled out, is, is positive. But I do believe in looking um, thoroughly, especially for reversible causes. You know, I do think it's important to, to measure thyroid and look for uncontrolled diabetes that may not have been diagnosed, et cetera. Um, and I also think that after the, uh, the office visit, they're pretty tired. And uh, giving bad news uh, is a hard thing. And so I, I finish by ordering the lab work. I don't 
always order uh, imaging. Um, I don't usually order imaging on the over 90 year old if I'm absolutely positive the diagnosis, for instance. But if I order imaging and order lab work and then I have them come back um, to really focus on just reviewing all of those things and delivering the diagnosis, which really requires that I'm prepared for them to be uh, crying, angry, for me to have a lot of empathy and support. And, um, and so, yes, I, I had them come back. And so at the end of that first visit, I don't put dementia on the problem list. I put cognitive changes or I usually put cognitive changes or cognitive change. And then I have them come back and after I've delivered the diagnosis, then I change it. Uh, to dementia. So yeah, ex excellent question. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, next question. How do you ensure follow up? Uh, once you have the diagnosis, they need to schedule follow up, uh, give the diagnosis and often the patient and family just don't schedule and we don't have room in our own schedules given uh, PCP access. Well, uh, yeah, that, that can be a challenge. Um, I, I think that um, that's where your team could perhaps help you. Uh, I, I often have my care manager alerted to new diagnoses of dementia in my, in my practice, particularly those diagnoses that I'm worried about because some of the family or safety issues. Uh, and so sometimes it's not me reaching out, but it might be the care manager reaching out and then also encouraging them to come back to see me. I think that um, the, the other thing that I do is sometimes reach out to the family on my chart and, and I realize we're all super busy, but the reaching out might just be like one sentence. How's it going? You know, are, are, you know, you're managing OK. Um, because I think they often think that we don't have the solutions for them and that we don't have the answers. And, and for some of the situations they're going through, they're right. If a patient's refusing to bathe, we as doctors don't usually have the answer for that. Um, but then I think we can either help connect them uh, to you know, either the Alzheimer's Association and or our care manager and or our pharmacist and or support groups in town, uh, or, and this is where the care ecosystem has made such a difference, uh, we can connect them to one of these care navigators. And so my hope is that we will really expand our care ecosystem because I think that's how primary care is really going to get into the game here. Because it's not going to be just us seeing them, um, although I do think that's important. It, it will be the, the rest of the team involved as well. All right, we have uh, a couple related questions around the mini cog. One is the first one is the clock necessary if the three object recall is normal. And the second is, could you offer a brief recorded video training for our staff to perform mini cog correctly? Yeah, no, I'm going to start with the last question. Um, so there is, <laughs> there is a video and uh, it's on Teams. Uh, we I, I can get it to you guys. I can get it to Eric. Uh, and, and apparently PMG uses that in MA training. I think the problem is that it doesn't always um, necessarily get to every new MA with all the turnover we've had. But yes, there is a video. And so I'll make a note of that. 
And, you know, I do think the clock is important. Um, you know, you're right. The screen, the screen will be fine if they get the three words, but the, the clock is part of the visual spatial executive function test. And I think that uh, for the MA to do the complete mini cog and record that is important in part because in the future, if the clock is abnormal, then we know that it used to be normal. So it's like with any kind of pre and post, I think it's good to do the whole thing. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, a comment. Uh, the book Help is Here is an excellent book. I'm a nurse and have shared it with people and ordered another book and sent it to my family in Chicago. And, and I would agree, we, we give that out here a lot and patients, uh, their families really appreciate the book. Um, That's great. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. An, another question, when do we start cholinesterase inhibitors? <laughs> yeah, well, um, so medication obviously is a is a big thing and I didn't have time today to get into that. I, I think every person uh, with Alzheimer's should have a trial uh, of a cholinesterase inhibitor. And so I, I, I don't always do the same thing. Um, so I deliver the diagnosis. Let's take the example in the chart. I deliver the diagnosis uh, and then on that visit, they were just overwhelmed enough uh, that I decided to wait until the following visit to start the medicine, in part because, as we all know, there's not going to be any immediate change in her welfare as a result. Uh, but I do like to start it uh, and give it a trial. And where we've been mistaken as PCPs is thinking that the biggest benefit of the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors is that they uh, really delay the progression of the disease. I mean, that's how it was billed. But I would say that the way I talk about it with patients and families is that acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, by increasing the acetylcholine in the brain, by I usually say by increasing um, substances in the brain that that uh, you don't have as much as a normal person would because of the dementia, your brain will click better. You will track better. And, and families tell me this. They see that their family member, you know, at least 50 to 60% of the time as a result of denepazil will, will have their brain just be better. Not, not necessarily what it was, and I, I'm quick to say it's not going to return you to what you were before, but you'll be able to track and click a bit better. That's one goal of, an, of the acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. The other goal is it can reduce anxiety. And anxiety, I mean, I could, I do have a whole talk just about on anxiety and depression in dementia. Anxiety is just rampant and it's very, very distressing. It's one of the worst symptoms somebody with de dementia goes through. And acetylcholine esterase inhibitors can actually help that anxiety. And we don't talk about that enough. So I think for those reasons, it's worthwhile to give. And I usually start with five milligrams and a month or two later go up to 10. I don't think we have to go up as quickly as the drug inserts say, uh, in part because it can have GI side effects. And if you if you increase the dose slowly, you're less likely to have those. Uh, a related question, um, supplements. 
um, any comment on use of supplements? Well, Prevagen is not evidence-based as a helpful medicine, and I regret that they are just blanketing the, the airwaves with their ads because everybody asks me if they should be on Prevagen and, and we have nothing to support that it helps. I check with my PharmD once a year to make sure there's no new evidence. Um, it's seaweed based. Uh, other supplements, ginkgo, biloba, no evidence to support, vitamin E, no evidence to support. Um, really, there's no supplement uh, that we have evidence for. I do think, I do think that we are going to have treatments in the future. I'm hoping in the next 10 years that are actually going to finally make a difference in the symptoms and progression of disease. Uh, I I know of some trials that are taking place. You know, people want to stop the deposition of the plaques and tangles. That's really how to best not have dementia happen for people with Alzheimer's is to stop those plaques and tangles from getting into the brain tissue. And I think we're going to get there. Um, so I'm hopeful about the future, even though our medications right now are, are not that great. Plenty more questions. Um, clarify what is considered an abnormal 88 score of two. Yeah, so so um, there are eight questions, and if they check two of those uh, questions as being yes, a change over the last several years, that's a score of two. If they check all eight boxes as as the husband of um, Mrs. JT did, that's a score of eight. So if they check two or more of those boxes as being yes, a change, then that's a positive or an abnormal um, test. Let's see. Um, do you have to know it's Alzheimer's dementia to prescribe Dinepazil, or can you prescribe it for vascular or other forms of dementia? Yeah, you know, we don't always know what kind of dementia um, we're dealing with, and so uh, it, it can be helpful in Lewy body disease. It's probably less helpful in vascular, but that doesn't mean we don't try it. Uh, and, and so I would say if you're not sure, I would go ahead and try it. And if they have adverse effects, then, then we stop it. And I say that every time I try the medicine. I say I'm not sure it's going to help. Uh, and if you have side effects that are alarming and the most common side effects uh, are excessive. Some people become more sleepy, sleepy. That's why we give it at bedtime. Uh, the GI side effects, diarrhea, um, some nausea, those are pretty common. Uh, you know, we can always just stop the medicine and, and they're reassured when I tell them that. Um, a related question, is there a point in advanced dementia when you would stop treatment? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I do have another grand rounds on advanced dementia and end of life care for those patients. I mean, that's a whole important topic. But yes, as somebody is really um, declining and likely in their last six months of life, they're, they're losing weight, uh, they can't swallow normally anymore, they're not as interested in food. Um, for those patients, usually I am stopping the dementia medicines. 
And if if along the way the family says, you know, I don't really think this Aricept is helping anymore. I have um, tapered it. I don't stop it cold. I taper it uh, usually over weeks. And what they'll then, and I say to them before I start the taper, I say, well, I can taper. And if they get worse in their cognitive function, we can always just go back. And if they're no different without it, then great, then we've stopped a medicine. And so I've done that too. And sometimes they do get worse when we taper. And then the family goes, oh, I didn't realize it was helping. So, uh, so yeah, you know, this isn't like treating with antihypertensives. This isn't a must do. Uh, we're trying to help help and if it doesn't help then then we can always stop uh, one question about sharing how to get more of the help is here books we could probably put a link in for that yeah uh, and, uh, put in a link and or um email uh itzel castellanos she was on the slide um or myself and yeah uh we're happy to, to help with the books. I mean, the, the clinic pays a fee and all that money goes to the foundation, but yes, happy to help. And, um, what do you think of Dale Bredesen's book, End of Alzheimer's? Well, um, what I think of that book is that uh, the studies that he cites um, were not well conducted studies. They were not uh, well designed. Uh, and I think that uh, his conclusions um, are not well founded based on the research. And so I'm, I'm not a supporter of his work. Uh, yeah, I'll stop there. Um. And comment, patient families sometimes do not see the benefits of an early diagnosis of uh, dementia or MCI, and I have lost a few patients from this. Um, thoughts yeah. on that? Well, you know, I think that, and I've lost a few patients too. Um, I think that there, there is so much about um, us having to be uh, patient and compassionate and sometimes less clinical around this diagnosis. And I think where I have gone wrong is um, perhaps when I've not recognized all of the emotional pain and trauma that, that, that this diagnosis may be causing. Uh, you know, I, I try to be sensitive to those things, but it's not easy. And there are also patients who just, um, you know, they can't see it, so they think you're wrong. And the families just aren't prepared to deal with it. And so they're also in denial. And denial, we know, is not an elective thing. It's a brain protective mechanism. People don't choose to deny. The brain denies to protect itself. And so I think, you know, we're going to lose patients. I lose patients when I tell them they can't drive anymore. I mean, that's the other big thing. Um, but but sometimes, you know, that's part of the price of, of what we do. Um, on the topic of driving uh, and reporting people to the DMV, is there advice about that? Or I've heard some people say there's a slum score below which, you know, the DMV will be satisfied uh, that they can't drive. Uh, 
Well, I'm sure that that most people with slums, less than a certain number can't drive. I haven't heard what that number is. I, I like for patients and families to know that um, I don't make the decision about who drives, DMV does. But I do have to report someone to DMV if I've made the diagnosis of dementia. Uh, and, and so I do report when I have the absolute diagnosis. Um, or uh, I also tell the patient um, that they, if, if DMV says, well, we need you to be retested, then by all means, I, I hope they, you know, do the best they can. And, and uh, what I often see is that the patients when faced with that written test again, won't take it or fail it. Uh, and, or when I suggest to them that they go to occupational therapy to see how their driving is. If they, you know, especially early in the disease, early dementia, often they can drive um, for a period of time. It's usually in moderate and late dementia where we have bigger concerns. And yet sometimes in early dementia, their judgment isn't very good. And so I do suggest that they either uh, go to an occupational therapist who specializes in driving or uh, get retested at the DMV. Um, the problem with the occupational therapy exams is that they have to be paid for out of pocket, and it's about $250. Not everybody will do that. Uh, but that is a way that for some patients, they can kind of find out from an expert, am I still safe to drive or not? But there's, I, I, don't, I don't say to the DMV, you know, a certain score. I just give them the diagnosis and let them draw their own conclusions. Thanks. Um, a question I think you touched on briefly. Do you always order brain imaging? I don't always order brain imaging. I order brain imaging um, if it's early in the disease and I'm not sure of the diagnosis and I think that seeing hippocampal atrophy might help me or might help the patient accept the diagnosis. Um, or I order an MRI if I'm really confused about what I'm seeing and I'm thinking that might be helpful. Uh, but I don't order in everybody. Uh, I certainly don't order it in most of my really more frail older adults where I don't think the diagnosis is in question and I don't think the MRI is even something they're going to be able to withstand very well. And that's a really loud test, all that banging in your ears. It's very noxious. So I'm, I'm, I'm thoughtful about who gets an MRI. Uh, the literature generally recommends that for most younger people, um, certainly anybody uh, 65 to 70, most of those people should get imaging because uh, they're so young or less than 65, obviously. But the older they get, um, I think it's, it's really dependent on what you see in front of you. Um, another Lots of great questions, but here's another. Many patients live in, in assisted living and overwhelmingly come in by themselves. And we use the return paperwork to the care facility, but that, that doesn't seem adequate. And any thoughts on how to um, bridge this gap with this vulnerable population? So, so the question is they come unaccompanied by the care facility? That's a, I think I think maybe it's getting at uh, 
we don't get much history when they come to see us and mm-hmm. then it's the communication the other way mm. is limited also yeah yeah okay well <laughs> this um this speaks to one of the great frustrations we all have in primary care and trying to interact with long-term care they're not on the electronic medical record they often send us very inadequate updates on how the patient is doing or what their concerns are um so i totally resonate with this and so i i often you know have my ma or my nurse ahead of time um especially if i know the facility and what their usual behaviors are um i try to reach out uh either the previous day or early on the day of of clinic um to to either fax over something that says, please send me your your current concerns with the patient and and um, any recent history, or you know a phone call. It, this is really where healthcare is not helping us. I don't have a simple answer for this. This is it's very labor intensive. It's very hard to execute, and the patients suffer as a result. But this is something we have to improve in this country. Absolutely. Um, a couple other medication related questions. Do you do you find a significant benefit between Dinepazil 5 versus 10 milligrams? Yeah, um, so what we know is that the 10 milligrams um, isn't double the effect of a 5 milligrams. It's less bang for the buck than the 5. Uh, and so I generally do push it to 10 to see if the patient gets any added benefit. Sometimes they're worse on 10. I've had uh, multiple patients um, feel worse on 10 or the families think they look less comfortable. Other family members say they do better on the 10 than the 5, but it's definitely um, not, not double the, the benefit. For a while there, you probably remember they had a 23 milligram denepazil. I think it may still be on the market, and that definitely just caused more side effects than it was worth. And I, I saw very few patients who actually could even tolerate that dose. So I'm not even sure that's still on the market, but it was for a few years ago. And uh, another question it uh, probably could spend an hour talking about, but sleep difficulties and hallucinations are frequently an issue. If behavior modification has been made, any pharmacotherapy suggestions? Yeah, no, this is a whole talk um, and and it's a challenging one. Uh, so I, I hate to give a blanket response to this. Um, we do have to sometimes use antipsychotics, especially if there's any risk of injury to the patient or to the caregiver, uh, and or if suffering is just so great for the patient with their agitation at night. And so I, I do use quetiapine and risperdal um, when I have to. Uh, melatonin is the sleep aid that is the best for a patient with dementia in terms of um not other side effects like we have with obviously ambien or benzos um and and melatonin can go up to you know 10 milligrams and there's also this extended release version 
but melatonin often isn't enough, as we all know, for some of these behaviors. So yeah, it's it's a very challenging situation and, and is worthy, worthy of the mini fellowship if you want to learn more. And so Eric, I want to be mindful of people's time. I'm happy to stay and answer more questions, but I realize we're over. Just wanted to to make sure this is okay on your end. Yeah, we just had a comment that the um the availability of virtual visits for geriatric psych has been helpful for families and facilities. So Great. And that was I was not aware of that epic referral or that we had that ability. So that's great to know. And I think that's I think that's it for the questions. Let me see. Yeah. So thanks so much. Well, that was a lot of great questions. Good, good questions. And thank you so much for your attention and Good luck to everybody out there. I know it's a tough world right now, so thank you. Yeah, thanks. Hi, everybody. Thanks for attending. Bye.